Thanks, Pastor Matt. So, uh, one of the elders sent that to me this Friday, and so I just had to put it up there just by way of saying, if you find me to be a little glitchy today during the sermon, like looking over my shoulder, it's because I'm a little nervous that they might actually try it, Um, because if you knew them better, you would think they might actually do it. Um, uh, but also because I, I want to say this right off the top today. Sometimes in Christian culture and in churches, we get this weird posture towards the world and, and, it, and it shows up in, on days like today, like days on like Super Bowl Sunday. And, and people kind of come and they get this weird attitude like... It's either like about church or it's about the Super Bowl. Like it's like they kind of have this like negative thing about like they're trying to take away our day or, you know, something weird like that. And and what I want to say is this, that was not the approach of the First Testament or the, the New Testament church. The first century church did not approach culture that way. In fact, they were constantly looking for ways to engage culture and to sort of bring the gospel in to uh, cultural moments and share the love of Jesus with the world around them. And so um, we're going to be a church today that doesn't like shun the Super Bowl and pretend like it's not Super Bowl Sunday because it is. And most of you are going to go home and watch it. Um, uh, and so just to sort of say, hey, we can worship Jesus and be excited about the Super Bowl. We're going to start today with a little contest of our own. Just to kind of get us in the mood. We're going to use like a Super Bowl vibe to get us into our passage today. That's what we're going to do. And here's how this is going to work. I, I was online this week on a site called UrbanDictionary.com. And, oh, it grown from the high school students over here. <laughs> They're a little nervous about what's coming. No, nothing, nothing bad. Um, Because there's this phrase that I think really describes and kind of gets right at the heart of what our passage today is about. And so I was looking online to sort of define this phrase, and I found Urban Dictionary, and it defines it. And so I thought, let's make a game out of this. So here's how it's going to work. I'm going to actually read through the definitions, the various sort of bullet-pointed definitions of this particular popular phrase, and then you, the church, are going to... Uh, try to guess what the phrase is. And in full permission today, just to sort of yell out and just kind of shout it out if you think you have a guess. And then, to incentivize you, uh, the winner, the first person to get the phrase right, gets a Starbucks card. Whoa. What's this? You say that, but you all know you want it. Starbucks cards are like gold in our society. So, so here we go. This is, here we go. Again, we're looking for a phrase. Are we ready? If you were in first service, don't be a cheater, because Jesus will judge you for that. Uh, Okay, and I will too. Here we go. An epiphany in which one realizes the truth of a matter. Coming clean and admitting failures. Realizing the true weight or impact of a negative situation or fact. Acknowledgement that one must get back to core values. Someone in the first service had it by now. Um, moment of realization. An aha moment. Yeah, you're close. That's the next definition. An aha moment. Moment of decision. Clarity. A moment of truth. A critical moment. A moment of reassessing priorities. A turning point. Doug Marshall. Doug Marshall got it right here. Second row. Here you go, Doug, right here. 
take your wife to coffee? The answer, for those of you who are still wondering because you didn't hear Doug, is a come-to-Jesus moment. And the last two definitions were turning point, a life-changing moment, a come-to-Jesus moment. It's this moment, friends, when a light bulb comes on and you understand something in a new way and that understanding results in you making a shift, making a decision about something in your life. And ironically, or, or maybe not, not so much, What we find in our passage today is Jesus offering us a come-to-Jesus moment. This is a come-to-Jesus moment from Jesus himself. It's a moment when Jesus will ask us to realize the true weight of our situation. It's a moment when he calls us back to some core values. It's a moment of decision. It's a moment of change. It's an aha moment of reassessing our priority, priorities and realizing that our lives must actually shift and turn down a new path, the path of following Christ. But here's the thing about come to Jesus moments, um, and it's true of this moment as well. They're never really that fun, are they? I mean, come to Jesus moments aren't these moments that we look forward to and are thinking about with very happy, joyful, kind of eagerly anticipating kind of postures. In fact, come to Jesus moments are the opposite of that. They often involve confrontation. They force us to focus on and look at and see our shortcomings in a real honest way. Many of us in this room have, probably all of us actually, have experienced a come-to-Jesus moment on some level. Maybe a little one, maybe a huge one. Someone sat you down and said, we need to have a talk. You hit rock bottom. The reality of your life or decisions or life's directions set in and all of a sudden before you, there was a choice. Continue down the road you're on or choose a new path for your life. A come to Jesus moment in and of itself is not a particularly sought after thing, but what it can lead to is healing and restoration, and freedom, and a new life-giving, life-transforming reality. And so it is with what Jesus offers us today. He offers us a come-to-Jesus moment that may not be that fun to hear, but has the power to heal and restore and utterly transform your life. And so, here we go, let's jump in. Luke, chapter 12, picking it up in verse 49. The words of Jesus himself. I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think that I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other. Three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, Mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south winds blow, you say, it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites! You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? 
Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled on the way. Or your adversary may drag you off to the judge and the judge turn you over to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. This is our very friendly Super Bowl Sunday message today brought to you by Jesus. But it's actually some really good stuff in here. This is a passage that may seem confusing and overwhelming and hard to understand, but when we get into it, I think you're going to find that the heart of Jesus is right in the middle of it. And he begins with these words. He starts right off the top. He says, I have come. And that little phrase, I have come, is actually just one Greek word. It's the word erkomai. And in the New Testament, when this word erkomai comes out of the mouth of Jesus... What we find is that he often uses it, he always uses it actually, to define for us different facets of his mission. Erkomai is Jesus saying, this is what I am all about. John 10.10, the words of Jesus, I have come, Erkomai, that they may have life and have it to the full. John chapter 12, I have come, Eric am I, into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Matthew 5, do not think that I have come, Eric am I, to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Mark chapter 10, for even the Son of Man did not come, Eric am I, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. John 18, then Pilate said to him, this is Jesus on trial for his life, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Luke chapter 19, for the Son of Man came, Erkomai, to seek and to save the lost to provide another way, to offer a different path than the one this fallen, sinful, broken world is currently on. Now, let me just pause at this point and say this. When we we group all of these statements, all of these I have come, Erkomai statements that come right off the lips of Jesus himself, when we group them all together, I think it's fairly clear, fairly plain to see that Jesus does not offer us a middle ground. He is either who he claimed to be, the one who saves and brings life and fulfills the scriptures and serves and is truth and is king. You must either accept this about him or, as Lewis says, you must call him a liar or a lunatic. Here's the famous quote from C.S. Lewis. You may have heard it before, but I want you to consider it again with these statements from Jesus on the screen in front of you. This is what Lewis drives at. He says this. I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. 
You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. You see, friends, this morning, as we dive in, our passage opens with another one of these statements that declares again the mission of Jesus, that tells us who it is we're dealing with. Luke chapter 12, he says, I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. Now, when we think of fire in the Bible, what do we typically think of? What kind of imagery is, is, does fire represent, at least in our minds, in the scriptures? Yeah, judgment, hell, suffering, right? And this, this is true. There, there are places where uh, the image of fire is used to describe these things. But it's not the only thing that fire is used to describe in the Bible. Uh, the scriptures also use fire to talk about cleansing and purification, and refinement. There's numbers of verses about this, but maybe one of my favorites is, is this verse from the book of Malachi, this Old Testament book, and this is a messianic uh, passage, a, a passage that sort of foresees the coming of Christ. Here's what Malachi says. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. When I was in college, we used to, to, to sing this song. It was one of my favorites. It was you know, popular back then. And it went like this. Refiner's fire, my heart's one desire. I can be worship pastor. Is to be holy. Sing it with me, church. Set apart. See, your job isn't that hard, Jerry. No, I'm just kidding. Um, when you're playing air guitar, right? If you have to actually play the real guitar, then it gets tougher. Um, no, here's the point. I digress for a second. Sorry. Um, the point of this verse and other verses like it, and the point of that song is this. Fire does two things simultaneously. It consumes and it cleanses. You see, some things, when they encounter fire, are consumed, they're destroyed, they're devoured. Other things are cleansed and purified and refined. Now, with that in mind, let's go back to our passage. I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Jesus' baptism is what? What's he talking about here? Yeah, he's talking about his, his coming death and resurrection. This is why he says, what constraint I am under until it's completed. The word constraint means to be, to be seized with fear. To be overcome with anxiety as he looks ahead at this death that he will have to face. This, this ju- the judgment of God that, that lies before him. That he'll have to be subject to that, right? This is, this is stressing him out. And, and those words, until it is completed, um, are again one Greek word, and it's ironically the same Greek word that John uses to tell us what Jesus says when he's hanging on the cross right before he dies. Taleo. It is finished. It's completed. The task is over, right? 
So Jesus says, I want to bring fire to the earth, but before I can do that, before I can bring fire to the earth, I must die for the sins of the world and then be raised to new life. And this is kind of confusing. What's he actually getting at here? Well, we're going to discover. Then he says this, do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. Again, this passage just gets more and more complicated and confusing and perplexing because Don't we often, doesn't the Bible even associate Jesus with peace? Doesn't Jesus want us to have peace? Doesn't he offer peace? Doesn't he come in peace? I mean, Isaiah himself calls him what? The Prince of Peace. When the angels show up on the scene to announce his arrival, his birth in Bethlehem, they say, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests, right? Jesus himself says to his followers before um, he goes to heaven, he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. But here in this passage, Jesus says, my baptism, my death and resurrection will not bring peace, but division. And then he explains it this way. From now on, there will be five In one family, divided against each other. Three against two and two against three. They will be divided. Father against son and son against father. Mother against daughter and daughter against mother. Mother Mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. In In the first service, someone said, well, at least we now know where family dynamics come from. (laughs) Right? Like This is is what's wrong with the holidays right here in this passage. Um, But here's the question. Is that what Jesus is saying? Is he saying like, hey, the reason like it's tough to get along with your mother-in-law is because I came and I'm trying to make it hard for you to get along with her? Like, you can blame it on me now? Oh, sweet. Easy. That makes it easier. No, no. Now, certainly some of us have experienced, even within our families, that what we decide to do with Jesus can be a point of tension. But is that... What Jesus is getting at here? Is that what he's trying to communicate? I would argue that no, he's actually trying to communicate something so much more. That is certainly a reality in some families and it certainly happens. But I think Jesus is driving at maybe something a little deeper here. The verses, um, verses 52 and 53, are actually a, a reference, a quote from the Old Testament. Jesus is referencing this passage from the book of Micah. Let me read the passage, the very familiar passage that his hearers would have understood and connected to. Let me read this passage from the book of Micah, Micah 7. Do not trust a neighbor. Put no confidence in a friend. Even with the woman who lies in your embrace, guard the words of your lips. For a son dishonors his father. A daughter rises up against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. But as for me, Micah says, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my Savior. My God will hear me. Now, what Micah is saying in this passage and throughout his entire book, really, is that things have gotten really bad. Micah looks around his world, he looks around God's people around the nation of Israel, and he says, things are bad, they are not the way they should be. Sin, evil, injustice, abuse, oppression, corruption, exploitation, wickedness, depravity, ruin, are now, according to Micah, on such a level that you can't even trust the people closest to you. That's how bad things have gotten. Even families, Micah says, were experiencing the disintegrating effects of sin and injustice in this world. 
But the ultimate message of Micah, like his ultimate conclusion where he lands at the end, is he says this, but someday God will come and make it right. Someday God will send a savior. But as for me, I watch and hope for the Lord. I wait for God, my savior. Someday God will come, according to Micah, consume injustice, destroy sin, bring the fire of judgment down on evil. God is coming to cleanse and purify, refine, and save this world that we live in. You see, Micah is looking forward to that day. And by referencing this passage, what Jesus tells us is this. That day has come. That day has come in me. You see, the dividing line between what will be consumed by the fire and what will be cleansed by the fire is actually Jesus himself and specifically his baptism, his death and resurrection. You see, when you read this passage like just off the top, you're tempted to think like, man, Jesus can't wait to bring fire to the earth and just send a bunch of people to hell. Like Jesus is excited about inflicting suffering and torture and punishment on people? This does not sound like the Jesus they taught me about in Sunday school. This sounds like mean Jesus. And it doesn't seem to square with the other sort of loving, graceful, hopeful things that Jesus says about why he's come, does it? No. You see, sometimes what gets preached is Jesus has come and if you aren't good, he's going to get you. Look, he's excited to get you even. He's pumped. He, like, he can't wait to get you. No, that's not it at all. In fact, it's actually quite the opposite. This is what Jesus is saying here. I'm longing for the day when racism and sex trafficking and drug abuse and selfishness and greed and jealousy and materialism and cancer and genocide and rape and murder, disease, disaster no longer plague this world I've created and my children that live there. I'm longing for the day when those things are consumed by the fire and wiped away off the face of the earth. You see, sometimes when we talk about God and we talk about the judgment of God, it can sound harsh. No one likes to talk about the judgment of God. It's not fun. And yet, and yet, there's something so beautiful about it, friends. When you stop and think about it, what would it say about our God if he didn't judge? What would it say about God if he never brought justice? You see, Jesus says, I can't wait for the fire that will consume unrepentant evil. I can't wait for injustice to be dealt with in this world. And now, just so that we understand even more the heart of Jesus, he continues. He said to the crowd, like he dresses the people now. When you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot, and it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? And in particular, me, who I am, and what I'm doing, and what I've come to bring, right? And here we we see the heart of Jesus, because... What Jesus is saying to the people here, to the crowd, is this. Don't you see it? Don't you see all the signs and all the information and all the evidence? It's all right in front of you. Everything you need to make a good decision is right before your eyes. 
You see, in Israel, because of where it was located, you can see on the map there, if we click to the next slide, uh, it was fairly easy and straightforward. It was kind of an easy process to discern the weather. Like, if the clouds were moving in from the west off the Mediterranean Sea, they would bring the moisture from the sea and often bring rain. So like, oh, things are coming in from the west, it's going to rain. If the winds were blowing from the south, from the desert in the south, then it would, they would bring what? They would bring heat. It was not like rocket science. It was very much this way um, when we lived in Ventura. And Ventura is like a coastal town in Southern California. And if the winds were coming off the ocean, you knew it was going to be cool and calm and pleasant. But then every now and then, a couple times during the year, the winds would shift and we would have what were called Santa Ana winds. The Santa Ana winds would come and they would blow from the east and they would kind of come from, you know, out in the desert in Arizona and it would bring this hot, dry, dusty weather. And ironically, this would often happen over the holidays. And so you would be singing songs and stringing Christmas lights, you know? The weather outside is frightful, but the fire is making this house really even more unpleasant than it already was, you know? And since there's no place to go, like, what are we singing here? It just did not work at all. It was one of those times where my wife would be like, this isn't Christmas. And all the Southern California people are like, oh, the Santa Ana winds. It's like the holidays are here. Like, what planet anyway? Anyway, again, I digress again. Uh, But, but, but friends, here's the point. The point is this. In Israel, it was so very easy to discern what was happening weather-wise. And Jesus says, when you look at me, And when you see my life and miracles and teaching, you should be able to easily discern that I am the Messiah, the Savior, the one in whom salvation from the coming judgment can be found. Daryl Bach, who is probably the preeminent scholar on Luke, says this, In calling them hypocrites, Jesus is trying to shock them into reflection. Now, you never think about Jesus this way, but he uses inflammatory language to get their attention, to sort of rattle them and shake them and say, look, see it, you know, hypocrites. It would be like standing up in front of a group and saying, you idiots, don't you get it? Right? I even like that if I called you idiots, so I would never do that. Um, Jesus, ironically, might, but I wouldn't. Uh, but he's trying to kind of grab them in because he knows that, that something needs to change, that something needs to happen, that they so desperately need to see this. Does anyone here, and this is Cedar Mill, so we should have lots of people, but does anyone here know the F- Newton's first law of motion? Does anyone know what Newton's first law of motion is? I'm looking at the high school students right now because it's fresh on their brains. Yeah, we got one over here. What is it? Say again? Just call it out. Oh, there you go. That's it. Yeah, here's, here's Newton's first law of motion. Sometimes it's called the law of inertia uh, for like you, all you physics nerds out there. An object at rest will remain at rest. An object in motion will remain in motion unless it is acted upon by, yeah, an outside unbalanced force, right? You see... Jesus, in this passage, is telling them that they need to understand Newton's first law of motion spiritually. He knows that it is going to take a shift, an action, an outside force to move them from the path that they are on and put them on a new trajectory. And he speaks to them with some emphatic language to move them in this direction. You see, sometimes... I think we have this idea, maybe 
The world has this idea, maybe that, that idea even seeps into the church, that, that everything in this world is just sort of okay. Things are fine. I mean, especially in America, right? You look around, it's like, it's not so bad. Things are okay. They're just kind of cruising along. We're just cruising ahead and everything's going well. It's not terrible out there, right? And, and then Jesus comes along, and, and this is what the Bible says. Jesus comes along, and all of a sudden, he takes what was sort of just kind of cruising along and doing okay, and he says, now I'm going to divide that group into, like, really bad and okay. And that's actually not what the Bible says at all. It's like opposite of the gospel. You see, Jesus comes and he says this, this world, this fallen, broken, sinful world is moving towards destruction. That's the path that all of you, that all of creation is on. And unless it is acted upon by the outside force of his love, then we're all in pretty bad shape. Friends, the gospel says that we are all on the path of destruction, all of creation even, and that Jesus comes to what? To offer us another path. That's why it's the gospel. That's why it's good news, because now destruction is not the only option. Evil and injustice and oppression winning the game is not the only outcome. There's now another possible outcome in Jesus. That's why it's good news. That's why it's gospel. And now Jesus will remind us... By the way, I feel like Super Bowl Sunday, someone should cheer at that point or something. I might take Gatorade right now, Marshall. All right, and now Jesus will remind us of how high the stakes are. Like, why this is so huge? Why does he speak so emphatically? Why don't you judge for yourselves, he says, what is right? As you were going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled on the way, or your adversary may drag you off to the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. I tell you, right? Like, focus on this, listen to this, hear this. The magistrate, um, in this illustration in Jesus' day was like a sheriff, a sheriff that's in charge of a debtor's prison. And Jesus uses an image here to say, as you head to the judge, doesn't common sense tell you, he's saying, it's better to square away your account and settle your disputes and make sure your debt is, is, is sort of accounted for than to wait to this moment where you're standing before the judge and, 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 and they could decide either direction Don't you want to make sure it's going a certain direction and not just take a chance on this? Listen again to what Bach, the scholar, says. He says, the background of the image is painful. This is a painful image. This is Jesus digging deep. Since in debtor prisons, inmates were beaten in order to encourage someone to step forward to make the payment. Like if you got hauled off before a judge and they decided like, yeah, you do owe and you haven't paid, they would put you in debtor prison. And in debtor prison, you know what they did? They beat you in order to encourage your friends and family to pay your debt for you. Not a good place to be. Not a fun reality to face. And so Jesus is intensely driving home this point. Do not take a chance on this one. Make sure you have no debt before God. This is Jesus giving us a warning. And just to be really clear here, sometimes we we think about warnings for like bad stuff that's ahead and when we hear it from Jesus it sounds harsh or maybe mean again let me just say it let me frame it for you this way isn't it like the most loving gracious thing to do to warn somebody when there's tragedy or trouble ahead 
I mean, I, I don't know if you guys ever experienced this, but you're driving down the road at night and you're cruising along and maybe you're going a little too fast. Like, not that I would speed, but some of you I know probably would. And the person coming towards you, like flicks their lights at you. What does this mean? Yeah, well, it either means there's an accident ahead, right? Like be careful or even worse. No, not <laughs> a cop with a radar gun is around the corner and they're going to nail you, right? And you kind of, and the person flicks their lights and you don't say like jerk. And you say, thank you so much for saving me from that hundreds of dollars of, you know, a ticket and an argument with my wife later, right? Thank you so much for the warning. That's what we should be saying to Jesus here. Thank you so much for the warning of, what, of the reality of the situation. He says, make sure you have no debt before God. And the Bible is very clear. The way to make sure you have no debt, the way to be reconciled, the, the way to be right before God is to fully surrender your life to Jesus as Lord. To accept his baptism, his death and resurrection as the penalty for your sin and the victory over it. You see, that's the moment in time when the fork in the road appears. When another option for your life and this world and all of creation appears out of nowhere because of the love and grace of God. The Bible says it this way, friends. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You see, this is a whole life transformation. This is a whole life surrender. This isn't just a a transactional moment. This is you saying, yeah, I want to go on the path where you're Lord Jesus, where you're in charge, and I'm giving you all of who I am, everything. This one is not worth gambling with. You see, like we said at the beginning... This is literally a come-to-Jesus moment. And so we're going to do that right now. Before we head off for the afternoon and dive into our afternoon plans and probably engage things that are much less, much less important than what we're talking about here. We're going to dive into this meal together. It's called the Lord's Supper. What it is, is it's really just a physical way of saying this. Jesus, you are Lord of my life, and I trust that your death and resurrection paid the price for my sin. That is the declaration you make in this meal. But more than that, friends, it's also us saying that we trust Jesus to take the parts of our lives that are still corrupted and evil and wrong and not right. And we're saying... Kill them, crucify them, bury them, do away with them, and then raise me up by your power to live a new life of freedom in you. That's the picture of baptism, friends. Baptism is this moment where you say, I will now follow Jesus. I surrender all of my life to him. And then as the church, after baptism, we come weekly to declare that together, right? To say, I still, Lord, rely on you. I still want to die to the parts of me that are, that are corrupt and unjust. And I'm longing for you to do that resurrection work in my heart. So this morning, as the ushers pass the elements out, take some time to do some business with God. Maybe this is a moment where you need to trust him for the first time. And if you need to put your faith in him, this is the perfect moment to do it. Through the bread and through the cup, you can trust his resurrection, his death for you. You can declare him as the Lord and say, God, I want to be on that path. I want to take a left with you. I no longer want to be on the road of destruction where my debts aren't paid. 
Or maybe for some of us, we just need to die to some specific things. We need to just let Jesus be in control of some specific places in our lives. And we need to say, Lord, weed out the injustice, the evil, the sin, the corruption that still lives in me. And maybe there's a specific place or a specific spot that Jesus needs to hone in on in your life today. So take a minute, friends. Talk to God about whatever it is you need to talk to God about. The ushers are going to pass the elements out. I'm going to ask that you hold on to those. And then we're going to receive the bread and the cup together in just a few minutes. So, ushers.